0: Okay, well, I want to start this evening with a few caveats uh, before we really start and dig into the topic. Uh, With any talk like this, there's going to be a few generalisations, aren't there? We can't really talk about every single nuance of a movement as large as Marxism. Uh, I also want to say, secondly, there's five caveats. The second one is that we're talking about Marxism uh, not helping the poor. That's Marxism not helping the poor. So we would have sung lots of songs about helping the poor. The Bible commands us to do that and to care for the underprivileged. And if we don't agree with Marxism, that's no excuse not to actually care for underprivileged people and poor people. Third caveat I want to make is that everyone is free to make their own political opinions. I'm not trying to tell you this evening how to vote. Next week, we're going to be doing Jesus versus capitalism. So I'm not trying to take sides. Uh, Both sides have their pros and cons. And uh, you just have to balance this with what we hear next week. Uh, so, I'm not proposing a ban on Marxism. I'm not suggesting that you cannot be a Marxist and a Christian. But I will suggest this evening that you can't be a consistent Marxist and a consistent Christian. But having said that, nobody's consistent, are they? We often hold these things together. Fourthly, I'm not going to take on the various expressions of Marxism. Uh, this is a quote from Tony Benn. Uh, it would be as wrong to blame Marx for Stalin's tyranny as it would be to lay the blame on the Spanish Inquisition on the teaching of Jesus. So I'm not just going to attack the way that it's showed itself in history, uh, because that would be really quite easy with you know, different expressions, but that's not really getting at the argument. That's just showing how people have used it for their own ends. All I'd ask is that if you're here exploring this evening is that you do the same with Christianity uh, and don't take the expressions of Christianity uh, as being a disproof of the theory. And then the last caveat I want to make is that when I say Marxist, please don't hear Labour or Social Democrat. Um, I was reading the book that uh, Richard and Dan let me and it points out very very clearly that British, the British Labour movement has a lot of different influences. One of them is Marxism, but one of them is Christianity as well. Uh, But the reason that we're talking about Marxism this evening is it's been in the news. The leaders of the Labour Party have been talking about it, or at least people have been asking them about it. So that's why we're talking about it this evening. So let's do that. Let's talk about Marxism. First of all, what is Marxism? I want to say that it's an economic view of history and the future. An economic view of history and the future. Let me tell you a little bit about what Marxists believe. The basic nub of it, if you sort of break it down right to the the basic presuppositions, right down to the, the easiest bits, if you like, is that Marxists believe that history is about economics. Okay? There are two groups, two different economic groups, that are engaged in conflict. You have the bourgeoisie, who are the sort of richer folk, and the proletariat, who are the working class. If you like, it's the rich versus the poor, those with capital against those without capital. That's why Marx's favourite uh, favorite book, famous book, probably was his favourite book as well, um, was Das Kapital, to do with capital, what people have. So if you want this proving, this is from the Communist Manifesto that Marx uh, co-authored with Engels. He says, the history of all existing society is the history of a class struggle. That's what he's saying history is, is all about. And in one sense, you can see what he's getting at, can't you? Marx made some really insightful observations. Uh, let me put them in my own words in the way of an illustration. Uh, imagine for a second that you have a, a landlord who owns a, a flat in Otley or in Ilkley. Uh, they have capital, they have money already. And what they can do with their flight is they can rent it out to people who have less money. So the money that the people have who have less money goes to the person who already has the money. And they get nothing other than the flat. They don't actually get possession of the house eventually. They're just renting. So the way it goes is that the person who doesn't have capital loses what they have. The person who does have capital gets more. Uh, or if you want to think about it, like a factory owner. The owner of a factory doesn't do the hard work but he gets the proceeds of the people who do the work in the factory. They get a wage, but he gets far more than they do. So those who have capital make more. Those without capital lose even what they have. So by his theory, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And he proposed a solution to this. The solution that he proposed is communal ownership through revolution. By communal ownership, we're talking about nationalisation of the means of production. Uh, So this is again from the Communist Manifesto. The theory of communists may be summed up in a single sentence, the abolition of private property. So what the communists are saying there is that nobody is to own things, because if you own things, you have capital and you make more. So they propose that all property should be property of the government whether that be factories. So think, think back to Britain, you know the coal industry, uh, the mining industry, all of that nationalised. But Marx took it even further, that nobody could have private property. So houses, well, you've got a house, you could you know, go on Airbnb and let it out to someone. So houses were, were part of the thing that the government owned. It even went as far in the Communist Manifesto, I double checked this this afternoon, uh, to suggest that wives uh, should be communal property. Um, So you can send your wife out to work. So instead, it was proposed that they have community of women, uh, communal wives. Uh, Though as far as I know, that's never been implemented, but it is there in the Communist Manifesto. And as well, children. Children are a means of production. You can send them out to work. So instead of being educated by parents, the Communist Manifesto said that children should be viewed as owned by the state until they got to a, a certain age and be educated by the state so that they couldn't be indoctrinated by their parents. So then they believed that all would be equal. If you, if you made everything the owner uh, under the ownership of the government, everybody would be equal. And the Communist Manifesto proposed a revolution to allow this to happen. It both described the way that this had happened in the past, and made it a policy for the future. This is what it said about the past. Finally, in times when the class struggle nears the decisive hour, The progress of dissolution going on within the ruling classes, in fact, within the whole range of society, it assumes such a violent, glaring character that a small section of the ruling class cuts itself off adrift and joins the revolutionary class, the class that holds its future in its hands. So it's saying there that in the past what's happened when there have been revolutions, because of these inequalities, even some of the bourgeoisie, even some of the rich people have joined the revolution because they now hold them in their hands. But it's saying this is what always happens when it gets to its pivotal moment. But then right at the end of the Communist Manifesto, it says this. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at the communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. So he's proposing there the, the overthrow uh, of uh, all property, the overthrow of the ruling classes. And Marx believed that the future then would be the victory of the proletariat, the working classes, and it would be at the end of history. So if history, if you think about it, is a class struggle. If one side wins, then history will be over. So they generally thought they were working towards the end of history, towards a better world. And Marx made this a matter of science, not opinion. Marx put this forward as a theory that he'd worked out scientifically. So to oppose him was not to oppose a matter of opinion, but to oppose science that had been worked out. So Marx took a political ideology and made it science. But I want to argue as well that what Marx did was not only make science, but make a religion. Marxism, another way of looking at it, is an atheistic religion. It's atheistic because that's the way it's always been expressed. Again, from the Marx in Das Kapital, he said, uh, as in religion, man is governed by the product of his own brain, so in capitalistic production, he is governed by the product of his own hand. So he's saying that religion is a product of man's brain, uh, not something that's revealed. And that's why all across the world it's always been imposed as a, 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 an atheistic uh, policy. But I want to argue as well, it is a religion, even though it's got no God. Because it has its own gospel, doesn't it? What's the problem? Well, it's injustice caused by wealth, inequality. What's the solution? Well, it's not Jesus dying on the cross, it's revolution. What's the result? Well, it's not heaven, it's a communist utopia, it's the end of history. Marxism has its own prophets, Marx, Engels, uh, Engels Lenin. I mean, put your hands up if you've ever seen a picture of the tomb of Lenin. Have you seen that with him sort of like laid out on the. You couldn't get a more sort of religious thing if you like, could you? It's almost like a, a shrine to Lenin. It has prophecies the revolutions across the world that were predicted, the end of history that would come at the end of the class struggle. It's got sects within it Leninists, Stalinists. It's got devotees, people who would die for their convictions. Uh, there's probably no other cause other than religion across the world that has had so many people die for its cause. Now, this is partly because of what we saw last week, that as people, we're prone to make religions out of anything. Uh, but Marx, I want to say, did something a bit different. He geared it this way. Marx took economics and turned it into a religion, an economic view of history and the future. And it's not just Marx, though, that, that bought this. Someone has said that really the rest of history has shown that Marx won the argument. Because people think now the primary mould of our our world is economic. So if you asked, you know, 200 years ago, how's your country doing? You might talk about all sorts of factors, how the king was doing, uh, how the morals of the nation were going, all sorts of different things like that. Whereas now if people ask, how is your nation doing? They're generally looking for your GDP, aren't they? They're looking for your stats, your economics. Or if you think about the famous quote that Bill Clinton made when asked about what would determine an election, he said it was the economy, stupid. Well, if you think about what we've seen, that's really a Marxist comment in a way. It's saying that the economy drives the politics. It's saying that the economy really is what the driving factor of the world is, the real story that's going on. So even the opponents of Marxism have bought Marx's basic principle that the world is all about economics. But what does Jesus say? Well, there were no Marxists in Jesus' day, but it doesn't mean he had nothing to say. We had read just before the parable of the tenants. I'll just read to you again the first opening lines, just to remind you what it's about. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. He leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the tenants came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Well, I want to say, first of all, the parable of tenants, is it a Marxist parable? When you read it, it does sound a bit like what Marx is talking about, doesn't it? It sounds like a Marxist world. You've got a wealthy landowner. You've got workers that don't seem to be seeing the fruit of their own labour who seem to want to start a revolution. And I wonder for a second, if what if Marx had told this story? What if Marx had told this parable? I think it would start quite similarly, the way that we did. You know, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit, went to another country. How would the story go then? Well, again, quite similarly. You know, the landowner would send his messengers. The tenants refused to give their fruit to the owner. He sends his son. Let's kill the son. And by that, shall we own the means of production? They kill the son, revolution. And they share the vineyard and all live happily ever after dancing on the bones of the dead landowner's son i reckon that's probably how marx would have told that parable now jesus could have told it like that couldn't he, he told this as a, a, a could have told it as a marxist parable and many do try and claim that jesus was a marxist for all sorts of various reasons partly because everybody wants to claim jesus as their own don't they uh, you know they, they don't want christianity but jesus yeah he was a feminist he was a marxist you know, environmentalists. Uh, everybody tries to claim Jesus. But let's just pick apart a story for a second. Who's the goody in Jesus' story? Well, it's the wealthy landowner, isn't it? Actually, he's the good guy. That doesn't quite fit with Marx, does it? Who's the baddie? The revolting workers, not the revolting as in, you know, disgusting. <laughs> the workers who revolt. Um, they're the baddies in this story. And that fits with the rest of the Bible, doesn't it? On the back of your sheet, you'll see there, there's Ephesians uh, 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not very Marxist, is it? That sort of comment. Or Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority... Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And then the plain old, you know, um, bombshell, Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Because that's what they do, isn't it? They kill the son. So again, this doesn't quite fit with Marx's ideas of, of how history works. What about the outcome? Well, instead of getting the vineyard, actually the workers are crushed, and more workers are brought in probably from abroad is the idea. It's the Gentiles. Um, So he gets in foreign labour to replace the ones he's got rid of. This really isn't a Marxist story, is it? But there are other Bible stories that people have said, well, this, this backs up the idea that the Bible really teaches Marxism. The classic one is Exodus. So again, you think about how Marx would tell the story. The poor Israelites, oppressed in slavery. And what do they do? They throw off the shackles of their rich oppressors they have a revolution and they leave the country for their own land. Except for when you read Exodus, that's not the language used, is it? It's not really the idea of what's going on in the Bible. They're not encouraged to violence, are they? In fact, when Moses tries to violently overthrow the Egyptians, he has to run away for 40 years. Now, actually, the, Egypt, the Israelites leave with the permission and blessing of Pharaoh in the end. That's the amazing way that God works it with the, the plagues. He gets Pharaoh to agree to them to go. So there's not a violent revolution there. It's not about economics there at all. The other classic one is is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 44. you see that on the back of your sheets. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together... And had all things in common. People have said, here we go, this is an early version of communism. Uh, God is instituting this with the early church. They had all things in common, after all, didn't they? Isn't that communism? No private ownership, communal ownership. Except they didn't exactly have communal ownership. In that, if you read through the accounts, they sell things that they have and put into the pot, in the, the central pot. So they obviously own things to sell them. The second thing as well is that this doesn't come through force, does it? It's not them overthrowing another group. They're not forced to sell everything that they have. They're choosing to do this. So it's very different from what Marx was proposing. I'm not sure whether I agree with it, but some think that actually this policy was a long-term disaster uh, for the church in Jerusalem. If you think about the rest of the New Testament, you read of Paul raising money to take to the people in Jerusalem. Uh, from the Gentiles. That's a big theme in lots of his letters, including Romans and, and Corinthians. Why is he having to raise money for these people in Jerusalem? Well, One idea is that actually that this didn't really work very well. They certainly didn't keep this going for a long time. So I don't want to push this too far because these aren't there to teach us about economics. They're actually there to teach us something else. And that's our third point, the parable of the tenants, a theological view of history. And of the future. I want to argue here that what we've actually got here in the parallel of the tenants is a theological view of history. So Jesus' view of history here is very different from Marx. It's not about economic warfare; it's about theology. So history is not rich versus the poor, but good versus evil. Or if you think about the Exodus, it's God versus Pharaoh. History is not a class struggle. That does happen, but it's a symptom of something bigger. What I'm saying really here is that it's not the essence of history. That's not what history is about. So I agree with Jesse J. if you've ever come across Jesse J., that it's not about the money, money, money. That's there, but it's not the main point. It'd be a bit like watching Titanic. Have you seen Titanic? It's a few years old, I know. But it'd be like saying that Titanic is, is about a modern day dive to the remains of the Titanic. Now, if you watch the film, that is there. There's the old lady with the diamond. But that's not really what the film's about. It's a sort of side plot, really, isn't it? So there are these issues of economics, but it's not really what's going on. So the characters of history here we see in our passage are God and mankind. And history is an interplay between these characters. This is the story of our world. God is the owner of the vineyard. The Jews are the initial tenants, but they're symptomatic of the whole of mankind. God plants the vineyard and then exits the scene. God makes the world. God makes a particular people for himself, the Jews, and then lets them get on with it. But he doesn't leave them entirely alone. He sends people to the tenants, prophets to call them back to God. You know, people say, don't they, why doesn't God speak to me? why won't God talk to me? Well, look what happens when God does speak. What do they do to the messengers? Well, down in verse four, and he sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed and so many others, some they beat and some they killed. Just read the Old Testament. This is what happens, isn't it? God sends people and God's people abuse them. They kill them, they beat them up. Moses, for example, did not have an easy time, did he, with the Israelites? So God sends them to turn them back to him and then God finally sends his son. Jesus Christ comes into the world and you think right this will sort it out but they do exactly what they've done before. They plot to kill him and they crucify him thinking that that will lead to victory. Thinking that that will mean that they're in charge. But the story ends with the owner returning and destroying the tenants and handing the vineyard over to others. Showing there that God's plans moved primarily from the Jews to primarily to the Gentiles. That's God's view of history. That's Jesus' view of history. That's what history is all about. It's summed up by God making the world, speaking to his people, then rejecting him, him sending his son, and then rejecting him too. And then giving the vineyard over to others. And it's not just Jesus' take on it. We won't look at them now, but Acts 7, Hebrews 11, Nehemiah 9... All of these point to a theological reading of history, that the main point of our world, the main story of our world, is not an economic one. Let me give you an illustration from history. This is a question I don't expect any of you to know the answer to. That's sort of the point. Um, But who was the biggest economic power after Solomon in the nations of Israel and Judah? Who was the biggest economic power after Solomon? Any ideas? Any ideas? You're allowed to guess if you want to, or you can just. That does fit what I've got here. Four letters. Four letters, yeah. Yeah. Um, Omri. Oh, oh, Omri. Omri. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Omri. So if you read history books, if you read books of the history of the world, he was the big guy. He was the one who actually, uh, you know, traded with all different sorts of nations. He's the one who built Samaria, made Samaria the capital of the northern kingdom. Really big deal in the history books. But in the Bible, it gets two or three lines. Actually, his son is the far more famous one, who's Ahab. Whereas the history books give him very little time. Very little about Ahab, but loads about Omri. Ahab in the Bible gets several chapters, doesn't he? Because the focus isn't on the economics it's not on the success of the king in their finances. The focus is on how they relate to God. And that's why Ahab's such a big deal, as God sends a prophet, they reject the prophet. Really, it's the parable of the tenants, isn't it? So really, the fight is this, if you, think, if you sum it all up from what we've seen. For us personally, it means, is, are our lives about money and economics? Is that what it's all about? Because if we agree with that, basically we're saying we agree with Marx. Is your identity an economic one? Is that how you see yourself in terms of economics? Well, if you do, then that's going along with Marx. Or is your life more than that? Is your identity more than a social security number? And if you don't think that's what happens in these sorts of societies, then you can look at the history books and see what happened in societies where communism was imposed. The Bible teaches that we're more than a pawn in a class system. That there's much more to life than what we have or what we don't have. And I just want to close with Jesus' words uh, from two different passages, Luke twelve, fifteen, And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And then Mark eight thirty-six: For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And we need to understand this whether we're Marxists or managers, whether we're revolutionaries or royalty. All of us need to know that history and our own lives are more than numbers. And that's why I think that Jesus would disagree with Marx.